This is the Theology Matters podcast. I'm your host, Josh Malden, and I'm here today with a special guest, Robin Lovin, who we are here to speak about his uh, recent book through Urban's Publishing called What Do We Do When Nobody Is Listening? Leading the Church in a Polarized Society. Uh, a bit about uh, Professor Lovin. He's an ordained minister in the United Methodist Church. He formerly served as the William H. Scheide Senior Fellow in Theology at the Center of Theological Inquiry, CTI, here in Princeton, as well as, before that, as the Kerry McGuire University Professor of Ethics at Southern Methodist University, as well as Dean of SMU's Perkins School of Theology, and before that, Dean of Drew uh, School of Theology in New Jersey, and before that, Professor of Ethics and Theology at the University of Chicago Divinity School. Welcome to the podcast, Robin. Thank you. I really enjoyed reading this book. I um, just want to talk to you a bit about it. It's a, a really, sh- it's a pretty short book. It's aimed at a kind of pastors, you might say, as well as scholars, I think, uh, at a, a broad readership. Um, maybe speak a bit about um, what led you to write the book and, and maybe even just about the title, because the title, I think, is uh, there's one way of reading it where it's kind of pessimistic, like what do we do as a church or as religious communities when nobody is listening? But you're actually when you start to read it, you realize it's a much more in-depth conversation about what it actually means to listen to other people in our society as well as to listen to God. Well, thank you, because I, I think you summarize very well the motivation I had in writing it. Uh, I have a sense that our social situation, the situation in our society has changed pretty dramatically for the church over the last few years. Uh, so that in, in contrast to the church being perceived as somewhat apart from the divisions in society, it's now regarded as a full participant. This this is not, uh, I don't mean that in a good way, uh, that uh, the church is, is part of the polarization of society. And one problem that that creates is it's very hard for us to hear anything that the church has to say apart from reading it into that uh, polarized context. There's another thing involved here, which uh, I guess is noticed by somebody as old as I am. You went through uh, my long uh, professional biography there. But when I started in ministry, we were on the, really in the high point of the civil rights movement and the peace movement, And the message to young theologians was speak up, make your voice heard, Uh, count for something, don't be afraid to to be controversial. Well, that's being heard today in a way not quite, I think, what was intended in the 1960s and 1970s. So so that, that part of it is, I... In this book, I'm trying to say to the generations of students that I taught ethics, maybe you don't want to be seen out there uh, taking a strong stance uh, that that just makes you part 
of the general background political noise. Maybe we need to be, as I say, listening and figuring out how to listen in a way that we haven't done before. We can maybe come back to that because toward the end of the book, you talk about uh, the virtue of elusiveness. Yes. yes. And it seems like that's kind of what you're getting at uh, here. Yes, exactly. Maybe before we do that, uh, when you talk about something like politics, I want you to sort of define that because you mean it in a much broader sense than what we might think of as uh, electoral politics, you know, the, the politics of the elections as we're going into a midterm elections and so on. When you talk about politics, you, you don't mean that, you, although what you mean encompasses that. So maybe speak a bit about what you mean by politics. That, that's a, a, a very good point uh, because my idea of politics really goes back, uh, I think, as far as Aristotle, and I suggested that in, in the book, you know, where politics is how we organize ourselves as communities to achieve the goods that we really see as, as important. And we certainly do that through elections and political parties and, and so forth. But most of us in our ordinary lives do that through the places we work, through our participation in community groups, through our participation in, in churches. And I want to see all of that as politics and not focus especially on the, the kinds of things that go on in, in elections and in social media that is actually divorced from the, the lives that people lead where they're, they're working for goods. When I was reading the book, I started thinking about uh, an experience I had and get you to maybe speak to this. Uh, in our neighborhood where we live, we have a kind of online uh, group, you know, using WhatsApp, the group, but it's an online forum just to discuss discuss matters. And I, a couple of years ago, I had the feeling it had been in some ways taken over by discussions of national politics, electoral <laughs> politics, what we see on the, the nightly news and so on. And I even sort of politely suggested, you know, maybe we should speak more about the, the local matters related to our neighborhood that actually we where, where we actually have something to, to do together. And is that kind of what you're thinking about as as politics, that even that is a kind of politics. But and this is kind of what you're getting at in the book, the, this broader polarization has in some way pushed out even that more local conversation. It's sort of taken over everything we do so that we, we don't even think about, oh, how do we build a new sidewalk so that our teenagers can walk into town? How do we get our local municipality to work on that? We don't even think about those questions because we're, we're so focused on these broader polarizing ones. Well, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and you got a good example there of what can happen in local neighborhoods. Gradually, we've shifted so that politics is not about what we want to do or what we have accomplished, but it's about bad things that have happened because other people did things. Hmm. Uh, and, and as you say, the re result of that is we don't even think about how to address local issues or problems in the workplace, uh, cultural questions that where, where we might have have an impact 
because we're we're busy explaining how all of our problems are the result of somebody else. Yeah. Mm. This is the Theology Matters podcast. And one of the things we think about on this is just what theology is and what what it can contribute uh, to broader global concerns, broader issues and ideas that people are thinking about. And uh, you've got a chapter on listening to the word where you really lay out in a very in-depth way the role that theology can play in helping us reorient how we see things and therefore how we relate to others, how we listen to others in our society. And you have a very uh, nice, pithy definition of the, of the purpose of theology on page 85. You say the purpose of theology is to understand the world and our own experience in theocentric terms. Maybe you can unpack that a bit. I also like what you say later in that paragraph. You start to talk about the ideas of James Gustafson and Charles Curran and their ideas of how theology provides an orientation, a posture, a stance to how we, so it, it's not just a sort of ideology, but it actually helps us figure out where we stand and how we stand in order that we might act. It, that last part is, is very important because we often think of theology as a set of ideas uh, which it certainly is, but as you say, it's a, it's especially as uh, Charles Curran would say, a, a set of ideas that gives us a stance that uh, it enables. It, I, I like the word stance because it kind of suggests that we're we're poised, we're ready to take action on the basis of a way of looking at the world that our theology gives us, and is you mentioned the my idea of the uh, key word in that stance is theocentric theology takes us out of the center of the picture and puts God in the center and the understanding of God is uh, the other phrase that I use a lot in the book is radical monotheism mm -hmm. from H. Richard Niebuhr. That, that is to say, understanding God as the center of reality is about seeing God as the creator and shaper and goal of all of the things that are happening around us. And if you take that seriously, then you can't really adopt this polarized stance toward the world. Certainly the idea of God includes judgment, but we have to be exceedingly careful about making our judgment into the judgment of God. It's more a matter of conforming our uh, judgments to what God is doing in history and being willing to stand apart from our own interest enough to see what might be happening in, in, in God's world mm -hmm. uh, that we need to be responding to. In the book, you provide a very helpful history of, say, 
especially the 20th century and how we got to the point we are. Um, maybe can you can you sort of in a summarized version give a bit of that basically to tell us both how we got to this polarized uh, moment and how the the changing religious landscape has become has come to fit into that. This, uh, as I say, is partly the result of having lived through as much of that uh, uh, previous century as as I have, uh, because I was beginning my education and certainly uh, thinking about how to shape myself as a as a pastor and a theologian during the time of the civil rights movement, and I I think at that point many people in uh, in American society and many people in in the uh, south and southwest places that I have have been lived uh, subsequently you know went through a radical change in the way they saw themselves and they saw their their place in society and I found that very inspiring when I was younger, and I and I, I I wanted to be a part of that, and I hope I did become a part of it in in some ways. But as so often happens, the way history works itself out is not just a straight line continuity with with the valuable things where, that we started with. Reinhold Niebuhr again talks about the irony of, of history. And so one of the ironies of history is the more committed we became to change, the more fragmented our identities and our movements and so forth became. So, you know, what started as people thinking about race and social justice it got transformed by economic issues, got transformed by the war in Vietnam to a new uh, view of the international situation. And, and so instead of going to a new uh, uh, society of equality and uh, humanity and, and so forth, we went to this fragmented world in which uh, everybody had their issue. Uh, and the important thing was to get attention for your issue as opposed to other people's issue. And I think what's happened in recent years is we've created a kind of unity again out of those oppositions. So I've got my issue, everybody else has got their issue, and it's easy then to polarize that and mm -hmm. to say, I and the people who are with me are set completely against this group that's on, on the other side. And what started out as a message of change and transformation becomes a message of opposition. Pay no attention to those people uh, the important thing is not to let them influence your, your thinking. Mm -hmm. So that, broadly speaking, I think we went from 
what was an important historical movement of social transformation to a move to a time of social fragmentation. And then we've tried to deal with the fragmentation by polarization. And that's what puts us in the bad situation that we find ourselves in today, politically. That is. Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe on that point, we can speak about, you talk about the virtue of elusiveness. And I think you're talking about both, as, you know, religious groups, the church could practice this, but maybe more broadly, it would be good. Maybe speak about what that virtue involves and, and why you think it, it would maybe yeah. help our situation. So I, uh, I do talk a lot about virtues. I'm mm -hmm. an ethicist after all. Uh, and, uh, and one of the things I'm, I'm trying to suggest is a, a way we respond to polarization is to look at the personal characteristics that we need to cultivate in order to deal with it. You know, there are some classic virtues like humility, uh, which seems to be lacking uh, today. There, there's a classic virtue of prudence, which has to do with, with how you adjust your actions to your perception of the reality that's around you. And I've tried to, to come up with a couple of new ones for us. And elusiveness uh, is, is, is probably my contribution to this discussion, right? Because, again, when I got started and with a lot of the people that I have taught ethics and ministry over the years, the point was stand up and be counted for what you believe in. But in a world where nobody is listening and everybody is standing up to be counted, possibly the virtue we need is the virtue of not having people quite be able to tell where it is we stand when we speak up on behalf of, of the kind of thing you're talking about, a sidewalk that needs to be built in the neighborhood or uh, uh, something that needs to be done in the school system. Uh, if everybody decides immediately, well, you're a conservative because you've said that, mm -hmm. uh, what you, the, the specific goods that you're concerned about just aren't going to be heard. Same thing if they say you're, you're a liberal, you're, you're, you're one of those woke people, you know. <laughs> uh, so, so elusiveness, being able to talk about what we think is important without putting ourselves or other people in a category is, is, a, is a skill. It, right. it's, it's not a defect. It's not a fault. It's not that you're not standing up for yeah. what you believe in. It's that, that that requires something different in this time than it did in other hmm. times. It's interesting because I think I might actually be pretty good at elusiveness, but I'm glad to hear that it, I, I, had, I had sort of seen it as a vice or as exactly. a flaw, exactly. that I was being dishonest when I sort of uh, hold back on certain things just so that I can sort of get along with people or, or whatever. But there, at least in some instances, I mean, it's all, that's the part problem with virtue, or that's the issue with virtues. You have to know when to, yeah. when to use them and so on. But yeah, in a time when we're 
everyone is so divided, there, there can be value in sort of figuring out where we agree and sort of setting to the side our areas of disagreement, we might say. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's right. And, and it, again, it, it involves being able to prioritize what's important to do now and what we, I can do, not, uh, not, not what everybody else ought to stop doing. That's, <laughs> that's the difference. Maybe a kind of last two questions. I mean, one is, and you talk about this in the book, that the very conversation about polarization can itself and often does become polarized. One way in which that happens, and I think you and I have both seen this, is people who sort of say, uh, you shouldn't even be talking about polarization. Instead, you should be inveighing against the group that is uh, threatening our society and so on. Um, whereas talking about polarization is some sort of both sides are equivalent uh, ideology. And if you do that, you're, you're bad. So um, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I, uh, that, as you suggest, is, is part of the uh, environment in, in which we find ourselves. Uh, and some of that involves really understanding the threats to democracy that we talk about today. And everybody has their favorite list of what those threats are and who it is who's, who's posing them. But uh, I think if you look at it in the long picture of history, the issue is that it, uh, the greatest threat to democracy is being unable to have this conversation in the, the public space. And by public space, I, again, don't mean just politics, but all of the places where, where we come together and, uh, and, and try to figure out uh, what the goods are that we're trying to achieve and, and where we make a case for those goods not a case for our label against everybody else, but a case for specific things that, that we want to happen. And one of the things that I do talk about in the book is when you think of your political role that way, then you're, you're more concerned about how you can get people into involvement with the goods that you're concerned about. Who, who has virtues out there that I can bring into this conversation? And, and as a result, I can be more effective in achieving the particular goods that I want, rather than who I have to, to uh, keep out of the conversation in order for my voice to be heard. You're internationally known as the foremost leading scholar on Reinhold Niebuhr. And I'm thinking especially of your seminal 1995 uh, book with Cambridge University Press on Reinhold Niebuhr and Christian realism. So I want to ask about Reinhold Niebuhr and, and uh, where he might fit into this discussion. Someone might say, where's the Reinhold Niebuhr for our time? Yeah. And perhaps it's precisely because we're so polarized uh, that we don't have a Reinhold Niebuhr. But what do you think about that? Yeah, that, I think that's a, a good observation. Niebuhr acquired the role he had as a public theologian, as we like to call him today, 
because we were in a time when there was more of a social and cultural consensus and and in which also we had a different kind of media universe that was able to lift up people who who had uh, a more reflective view of of the society rather than uh, people who were striving to get attention in the midst of you know all of these competing influences so the question of where uh, Reinhold Lieber is is not just a question about why don't people like me <laughs> achieve what Reinhold Lieber did but what are the what are the social and historical conditions for those achievements and and Lieber himself certainly understood that uh, and I mentioned a minute ago his idea of the irony of history, uh, which is not just that things change, but they change in ways that set our own expectations against our uh, best interest. Uh, his favorite example of that was uh, that uh, we, is, as a society, you know, place great emphasis on individual achievement and entrepreneurship and so forth. And this, this allowed the society to, to make great achievements, but it also made us less able to deal with the social problems that arise in a more complex kind of, of society. And I think similarly today, uh, you know, he had an idea of how you could appeal to our historic values. And uh, we find ourselves today in a situation in which those historic values have become part of the polarization. And whenever you say, I'm, you know, for freedom, uh, this implies a set of political positions. Uh, and when you say I'm for justice, that implies another set of, of, of political positions and nobody's listening. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I think we need to, to hear Niebuhr's uh, message about, about the irony of history and uh, take, take his invitation to deal with with the realities around us, as uh, uh, as as a guide to to our action, but of course not that we simply try to be Reinhold Lieber over again. You know? mm. That's fascinating, Robin. Thanks, uh, and thanks especially for coming on to talk about this book. I mean, the the first half of the book, you you know, you diagnose our situation. Uh, but I think what's even what's so valuable is that in the second half of the book, you you do give really practical advice, actually, to how we can listen to uh, theological ideas, how we can listen to our neighbors, and how we can listen to the marginalized in a way that can actually deepen our our social uh, lives and work against this polarization. So the book is "What Do We Do When Nobody Is Listening: Leading the Church in a Polarized Society" by Robin. 
Lovin. Robin, thanks for coming on the podcast and discussing your book. Thank you. I enjoyed this and uh, look forward to hearing the response from your listeners. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks.